we're starting to work on our video streaming. So some messages are just for the church and some for the rest of the world. Uh, turn with me then to Matthew 6. This morning is January 11th. It's 2009. Our message this morning is called Invested in Stocks. Invested in Stocks. You know, it seems like everywhere we turn right now, tell me when you're in Matthew 6. Good, good. It seems like everywhere we turn these days, uh, there are just dire predictions about the economy. And it actually becomes kind of a, a self-perpetuating kind of thing. The more you talk it down, the worse it gets. In fact, life seems to be that way. Have you noticed that the more negative you are about a situation, the harder it is to deal with it? Mm -hmm. There's something to be said with just a positive outlook. Now, I don't mean the bumper stickers that say life is wonderful, people are terrific, everything's great. You can't just manufacture it, period. But if you have a hope that is derived from the world, from the word, not the world, then it's something that you can fan into flame. You can choose to concentrate on that which is good in your life. Uh, I, I read not too terribly long ago, you know, Benjamin Franklin was one of our more prolific uh, inventors in American history anyway. I mean, he and Thomas Edison seem to have invented everything that we love. And he said that the statement that changed his life the most, he had read in a book, and it said, a man often considers why God put thorns among roses. He said, man would do better to contemplate why God put a rose among thorns. He said that this occupied the foremost chamber in his mind and gave him an optimistic outlook on everything that he did. I'm not just talking about positive thinking. But friends, if we can learn to concentrate on that which is good, you find the scripture's true. To the pure, all things become pure. And I'll tell you the truth, I found it's just plain easier to go through a trial with a smile than it is a frown. This morning, I'm going to share with you some treasure, treasure that came from the king to me. It changed my life, and I want to see uh, if it has the potential to change your life. So I'm not telling you this morning is an outstanding theological dissertation. This morning, I hope not to impress you with conjugating Greek verbs or teaching you Hebrew statements. My hope is to give you a pearl that was given me, and it's produced some fruit in my life. So in Matthew 6, I just want to read you something that you're probably pretty well familiar with, but it's worth thinking about. It says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. There is nothing wrong with having nice cars. Nothing wrong with having nice houses. Nothing wrong with possessing things that are of value. I don't discourage it. I don't think there's anything particularly holy about living in a burlap sack and hiding in a cave, choking yourself with one of those strange white collars. I don't think that that, that form of backing off from the world in any way does anything for Jesus. It has an appearance of being holy to deny yourself certain things, but in the end, it doesn't, it doesn't have any value in restraining sensual desires. It doesn't have any real substantive holy qualities. What I find is that when we have things that we view as God's blessing in our life, and the, thing never, the blessing never becomes more important than God, it makes life full and rich. 
You find out that a woman named Eva in the dump of Matamoros can praise God that the garbage dump was moved from one side of a road to another because she had better access to it and to her its treasure. Would anybody think that was an idol in her life? It's not an idol. She thanks God for it. Well, it's really not any different when Christians rightly possess things. Having said that, I don't want any of my focus in this life to be upon things that I possess that you can touch. Everything that is really valuable to me is an intangible thing. You see it, much like you see the effects of wind on trees, but it's not something that you can put into a container. In fact, if you turn a few more chapters to the right in Matthew, you hear Jesus describe this. It'd be in Matthew 13. Look at the 52nd verse. He said to them, Therefore, every teacher of the law who has been instructed about the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. Number one, in the New Testament church, at least that's what people call uh, churches today, we very rarely look positively upon teachers of the law. You usually lump them into a group of people that are opposed to Jesus and opposed to the followers of Jesus. We forget that there were teachers of the law teaching rightly and that Jesus says it's like they're bringing you old and new treasures out of their storerooms. Well, the things that I treasure most are the things that God Himself or God working through a teacher has taught me that made a difference in my life. You know, a man's life can be defined by the sum total of his choices. When you read the first 20 chapters of Jeremiah, you cannot get away from the fact that the people are saying, all this stuff bad is happening to us, or it won't happen until it did. And we don't know why. God must be unjust. A little bit of complaining like in the book of Job. And God said, it's your own choices that brought you to this place. And he worked to correct it, and worked to correct it in the people, but they were obstinate. The obstinate, op opposite of being obstinate is pliable before the Lord. I want with all of my heart to be pliable enough that when God teaches me something, it belongs to me. I hold on to it. I cherish it and I polish it and I wear it around and show people much like when you ladies get engaged, you like to show your ring off because the Bible says it's like treasure. And one of the things that I have that is a treasure to me more than any other of the things that God taught me comes from Acts 16. And I've shared it before and I will share it many more times in my life. And it has to do with the way that the gospel is spread through personal sacrifice. So everything we teach you this morning is going to have to do with that setting. Okay, turn with me to Acts 15 and then we'll go right into 16. You'll remember who David Livingstone is? I got one of his books for 57 cents because nobody values the classics anymore, right? I mean, why would you want to read about David Livingstone's sacrifice in spreading the gospel across the continent of Africa when you can read 47 ways to become rich? Why would you want to read about a man who was attacked by a lion and had to have its jaws pried off of his bones? and then got up went and finished building his house because God told him to. When you can read about gold dust appearing in people's churches. I'm being facetious, obviously. 
But our whole ship is turned the wrong way in American Christianity. We don't mean for it to be. Some of it's just a product of our environment. But we've learned to apprise material things more than spiritual blessing. And if we're not careful, the same thing that was said of the first century churches in the book of Revelation, where we believe that we are rich and yet are poor and miserable and naked, could be said of the American church. In fact, it's probably already <coughs> greatly true. What I want to do this morning is show you a principle in the Word that once you get, it will fan in the flame something in you. It will make you look differently upon every trial that comes your way, and it just might, like it did in me, ignite a burning desire to do what others will not do for Jesus because the cost is just too high. I mean, do you really want to be involved in the popular movement that everybody else is doing? Like, what is everyone doing this week? Is it a principle of 12? Is it a cell ministry? What is it everybody's doing? And let's just jump on that vision and that bandwagon. There may be nothing wrong with those things. I'm not talking them down. Please don't misunderstand. And there's a place even for a prosperity message. Very small one. Done in a godly context and in a right way. But it just seems that everybody is flocking to whatever is most palatable. Some of you noticed in worship this morning, we had a guest come in. Greeted me warmly. Nice man. And he was excited. He heard the music and he liked it. Until somebody prophesied in tongues and then the guest ran out as fast, actually faster than he ran in. I'm not interested in making Christianity more palatable for the sake of just being palatable. You know what? I want to become all things to all men as long as it does not decrease or diminish Jesus. How dare we be ashamed of something God gave us? Yes. Were those words of encouragement good this morning? Yes. They weren't scripted. Nobody said, hey, look, at this point in the service, somebody prophesy in tongues. Nobody did that. No. Nobody said, you give the interpretation, you give the other half. That didn't happen. You've been in our services where all of those things occur and it's other services where they don't. We don't have a point in the service where we say, now is the time we must have three prophecies and uh, give them. I've been in services where that happened. I thought it was strange, but that's not us. We don't do that. Should it really discourage you or hurt your feelings that some find that not palatable? I don't think so. I think that what happened there is what happens all of the time, and you've been in this position many times too. Your heart gets laid bare. Do you really want Jesus regardless of what it is He has for you? Or do you only want Him on your terms? Mm -hmm. There's a man that's a relative of mine that told me that Jesus just wasn't working for him. Mm -hmm. I said, no, no, friend, I'm sorry. You're not working for Jesus. And he said, no, I'm there in church. I'm trying. I said, why do you show up after praise and worship? He mm -hmm. said, well, it makes me uncomfortable. I said, see, you're not really working for Jesus. You're trying to make him work for you. You only want to do what is easy for you to do. You can't get anywhere in the kingdom if you only do what is easy for you to do. Now, I'm not talking to you about the lost. I'm not talking to you about some person who's misdirected, who just wandered in. I'm talking to you about your life. Everything that is done in the kingdom is done through self-sacrifice. You remember David Livingstone? The reason I wanted to tell you about him was a quote you've heard before. I love it. I try to live by it. A Bible society who was supporting him more because he was a scientist than he was a missionary, oddly enough. But in any case, they're supporting him. They said, David, Pastor Livingstone, 
Have you found good roads to where you are? Because we should like to send to you some of our graduates. He said, if your graduates will only come if there are good roads, I think you should keep them. I prefer the kind that come when there are no roads at all. This is the burning, driving heart of a real Christian. You hear it in Paul's life when he says he desired to lay a foundation upon which no man had laid. He wanted to do the hardest work for the king. Now, we are programmed to want to coast. That's just the truth. If you ride up the hill, it's usually so that you can coast down the other side of it. But there needs to be something in us that says, Jesus, I want to go the extra mile. I'm not looking for the minimum to be saved. I'm not looking just to sit on my salvation and try to farm something. I want Lord God to hunt, to be aggressive, to go do what you've called me to do, even if that means crossing the street to talk to my neighbor. See, this kind of heart has got to burn in us. And one of the problems is we're taught to be meek. We're taught to be mild. We're taught to think in terms of uh, not standing out. In Christ, you're supposed to want to step up to the plate to hit the home run. You're supposed to. Not so that you can dance around and talk about how great you are, but so that the home run gets hit. We cannot sit around praying and hoping someone else will do everything. At some point, somebody has to step forward to do it. Y'all follow me? Okay, let's talk about some men who are doing it then. In Acts 15, there is a, a, uh, a real fundamental issue that had to be covered in the church. It's a problem because what has happened is the door of faith has been opened to the Gentiles. What do you do when people that don't look like you, that don't act like you, that have different cultural customs come into your church? What do you do? Right? Because that's the question here. Uh, do you have the deacons tell them, I'm sorry, I think you'll be more comfortable in a church down the road? I'm ashamed to say I was in a church that did that. I wasn't a Christian, and most of the other people there were not either, but they did do that. It was an all-white congregation, and a black family came in, and they were not welcome. You know what? Jesus wouldn't be welcome either then. Yeah, how about that? A very famous story about a certain seminary in Dallas. Uh... Tony Evans, go listen to his, his testimony. He is a seminary student and is attending the church on the campus, everybody knows its name, and was told he would be more comfortable somewhere else. Well, this faced the early church too. The early church is sitting there going, wait, we're all Jews. We eat a certain way. We dress a certain way. Jesus was a Jew. He's our king. All of the apostles were Jews. Should we really let these Gentiles come in among us without becoming just like us? Shouldn't they have to become just like us? And the overwhelming answer from Paul and, and Barnabas and Peter and James who issued the decision was no. We should not lay any stumbling block or make it difficult for them to, to turn to Jesus. It's by grace that we're saved with the law. Not meaning grace and the law produces salvation. Those under the law were saved by grace. And those who had never been given the law were saved by grace. Well, with this message going out, men first start to say, okay, then let's go reach the whole world just like Jesus said. We're not going to bring them shackles. We're going to bring them freedom. Something happens. Men want to do something for God. Something happens. In Acts 15, starting in the 36th verse, Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us go back and visit the brothers in all the towns we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. 
Paul and Barnabas had been cross-cultural uh, missionaries of a first-class order. They went out before the church had given sanction to do it, before it was really popular to do it, just the believers in Antioch wanted to do it. Now they want to go back that they have the blessing of the whole church community uh, and see how the brothers are doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. You're kidding me. They parted company. Do you mean that two men who really love the Lord of God can have an argument? Friends, if you really love anything and someone else really loves the same, you're going to feel differently about things. If you're not passionate about anything in your life, something's wrong. In fact, if you find a husband and wife that never squabble, they're not talking about anything important. <laughs> Because if you're both equally invested in a subject, it takes some work to figure out how we submit to one another in love. If you never have moments where your heart's beating fast and you're, you're invested and you're worried, you want to make sure that it's going to turn out for God, if you never have that, you've withdrawn in some way. So when couples tell me we never fight, I know that they're either lying or they're not really sincere couples. You know, they may live in the same house, but they're not sincere couples. Because anybody that loves something passionately is going to feel strongly about it. That's the nature of this. So, yeah, all the husbands and wives are feeling encouraged with that, right? So, what happens is Paul and Barnabas feel very passionately about this, and this brings them into sharp dispute. You want to know what the Greek word is for sharp? Yes. It's sharp. That's why it was translated sharp. There is no way to dress this up. They got mad at one another. Okay? So much so that they went separate directions. When there's an argument in your life, what do you like to do when you look back upon it? Who was right and who was wrong? How about that? You know, in Acts 14, 22, you don't have to turn there. I, I rarely lie when I preach. In Acts 14, 22, after Paul had been stoned, in the previous city. He warns the brothers, it's through many hardships that we enter the kingdom of God. He and Barnabas were both well acquainted with this and now they're running into a hardship of their own making. They're not able to get along. So who's right and who's wrong? How difficult could that be to determine? Well, you say, well, Paul could be right because, I mean, John Mark did turn back, right? Well, even Paul in 2 Timothy 4.11 says, would you please bring Mark to me? He's useful to my ministry. So it sounds like maybe Mark didn't do all that bad. And there is that, that book in the Bible. Let's see, it's Matthew, Mark. John Mark wrote that one. So apparently he wasn't a complete failure in life, right? What is it about us that wants to remember people in the worst possible terms? Did you ever know anybody that in the seventh grade did something stupid? And so... All the way late in high school or college, you still remember them as, you know, the girl who came to school with a mustache or, you know, the kid who sat on the banana in the seat or whatever it was. Why is it that we remember people like Thomas as doubting Thomas and John Mark as the one who deserted? Why not Thomas is the first man in all of the scriptures to say, Jesus, you are my Lord and my God. Why not remember John Mark as the writer of Mark? Why do we call him John Mark when he's a deserter and Mark when he's an apostle? 
Why do we need to make the distinction? So who was right? Then Barnabas was right, right? Well, you look, and Paul seemed to do pretty well in life too. How does that work? In fact, you find out in the book of Corinthians that Paul one time said, differences must occur among you to show who has God's approval. Well, doesn't that sound like if a difference occurs between Darren and Angie, God is going to approve of one and not of the other? Doesn't it sound like that? Yes. You don't see that in this case though, do you? God seems to approve of both. It was a revelation in my life that God could use something ugly, like a sharp disagreement, so that His approval could rest on two different groups of people in two different places. This was a fundamental change in my understanding. I was sure that if division occurred, somebody yielded to the devil and somebody yielded to the Lord and it wasn't going to be me that yielded to the devil. Right? Sometimes God allows there to be a separation among groups because He wants to do two different things. Today, right now, we stand separately from a church that is in Baton Rouge, Louisiana that I love with all of my heart. But it was through a sharp disagreement that this happened. And you know what? I can see God's approval on both. You know what that is, friends? That's maturity. That's maturity when all you can do is say, but I was wronged! And you're so sure you're right. That's immaturity. But if, like Benjamin Franklin and like Jesus, we tend to look at God's moving in the situation, you know what I can see? There's a group of believers there and a group of believers here that agree about most things and the few things that are different allow there to be some color in the body. Isn't that awesome? God is good. So that was a, a jewel that God had given me. And that's why I was here and I was developing this, uh, this ministry call saying, Lord, I know that you've called me, but I'm without Barnabas. You know, the truth is I'm out here all alone. God had given me some very faithful friends, some people that came to help me start the ministry, but I did not have in my life the Barnabas that I needed. He was gone. I began praying and asking God, send the P-Rose. And he did. You find out same thing happened in Paul's life. Look at the next few lines. It says, uh, Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, uh, commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Sicilia, strengthening the churches. So John, Mark, and Barnabas go off together. And Paul and Silas go off together. And the story largely becomes about Paul and Silas. But did that mean that Barnabas and John Mark weren't doing good things? No, they were doing good and godly things. And Barnabas had a knack for taking young, immature, fiery believers and turning them into superstars. He had just done it with Paul. Remember, it was Barnabas that had gone to get... Uh, Paul in Tarsus and brought him back to Antioch and vouched for him before the brothers in Jerusalem. Now he's doing the same thing with John Mark. We know Paul finished well on John Mark. Barnabas is functioning within his calling. Watch this. Barnabas is nowhere recorded in the word as a Roman citizen. He is a man named Joseph who was a Levite. And he was so uh, encouraging that the brothers called him Barnabas. And so forever his name becomes Barnabas. Silas, however, had a different pedigree. Isn't it interesting that God could look at a group of people and say, Abel, I have this work for you, and Casey is perfect to help you. Adam, I have this work for you, and Brad is perfect to help you. He said, but you know what? I, Abel said, I really, I've known Brad longer. God knows exactly 
what we need. This is wisdom. It's maturity to begin to realize not to kick against God's goads. He separates who he wants to separate. He draws together who he wants to. It's our job to get on the same page with him. Have you never not known what you needed? <laughs> never not. You like those? There's teachers in our midst. Double negatives. Abounding. I have been in situations where I did not know what it is that would be good for me. In fact, one time I just fell on my face and said, Lord, I don't understand all this. I just want to stay saved. I said, well, were you fearful of losing your salvation? It's only one group that ever asked me that question. I was fearful that I would produce no fruit, that I was done, that what people were saying about me was true. I was fearful of that. You know what? I never felt any closer to Jesus than those next few minutes. Find out that in your brokenness is when He is the most powerful. Yes. That was a moment in my life where I really didn't think too highly of myself. Mm. I didn't esteem myself more highly than my brothers. In fact, I was sure I was the least in my clan. It's at those moments that God says, you know what? I'm going to do something special with you. This was a jewel to me. He came to Derby and then to Lystra where a disciple named Timothy lived whose mother was a Jewess and a believer but whose father was a Greek. Why on earth would Luke, a detailed historian, by the way, he leaves himself out of this. Have you noticed that? Luke doesn't say, and I was chosen to go with Paul. One of the most wonderful things in the kingdom are people that do not need credit for God's work. They're content just to leave the credit with him. Luke was very much that way. So why do you think this detailed historian mentions that Timothy's mother was a Jew? And what a strange thing to say. I mean, how many of you have ever been introduced as, hi, this is Adam, whose mother is Baptist and whose father is Presbyterian? What a strange way. It's because the subject matter in the previous chapter had been about Jewish and Gentile relationships. And does the Jewish church accept Gentile believers without restriction? That had been the subject matter. Well, because of Ezra, the 10th chapter of Ezra and the 2nd verse through the 4th verse speak about the Jewish people marrying foreign women. And when they married foreign women, their children were considered foreign. The Jews, all the way back to the 5th, 6th century BC, had determined whether or not a child was Jewish by whether or not his mother was Jewish. And the idea being, if the mother was Gentile, the child is Gentile. If the mother was Jewish, the child was Jewish. Though maybe one exception to this is when a woman is converted prior to having a, a baby, like Ruth. Ruth is a Moabitess, so her son, would, after she becomes a Jew, her son is considered Jewish. Now this is biblically based, but it's also heavily influenced by the oral traditions of the Jewish people. So to a Jew, when they hear about Timothy, they're going to consider Timothy Jewish. Does that make sense to you? Because his mom's Jewish. Now we know his mother's a believer because writing in the book of 2 Timothy, Paul said, your mom Eunice and your grandma Lois, by the way, Lois was one of the first to be in the faith. He said, they taught you the scriptures since your infancy. Well, if they taught him the scriptures from his infancy, what was she doing married to a Gentile? What a question, huh? How many people come from mixed, messed up backgrounds? You know, I can speak for the first row over here. I know we all do. But something about these women was godly. Something about them yearned for God. By the way, if they had taught him the scripture from infancy, infancy, what scripture are we talking about? 
must be the Old Testament, the Tanakh, because the New is not written. Okay? So Timothy is raised with a reverence for God's Word, but he is not raised as an Orthodox Jew because his father was Greek. He was never circumcised. One of the first things that Paul has to tackle in his new staff is, what do I do with this? If he had had a Jewish father, he would have been circumcised. He would identify with the Jewish people. His daddy wasn't Jewish. Maybe his daddy was dead by this time. Who knows? Do you remember that Paul often calls Timothy his son in the Scripture? It seems that Paul took the role of a Jewish daddy and said, you know what? For two reasons, we're going to circumcise you today. One is because you have a Jewish heritage, people consider you Jewish, and you can embrace this side of your culture. A second is, he says it in the Word, I don't want... There's Jews where we're going, they know you're a Jew, and you want the message to be palatable to them. When I say that I don't want a Christianity that is palatable to everybody, I mean this specifically. I don't want to yield anything in the Word. I don't want to squish it or diminish it for the sake of somebody's acceptance. But that does not mean that we cannot sacrifice every possible way in ourselves to make it palatable for someone. Here's an example. Do you have to go outside in the rain with an umbrella to help somebody in the church? There's the word, is there a scripture you can think of that says, Brad must pick up an umbrella, go outside and help Bob into the church on a rainy day? No, there's not. But is it godly for him to decide that he will sacrifice his warmth and comfort for the benefit of someone else and help them in? Those are the kind of sacrifices that compel the kingdom. I cannot tell you that the word says something that it doesn't. I also cannot tell you that it doesn't say something that it does. But wherever possible, I can lay down a right, a benefit, even a freedom of my own for someone else's benefit. This is the kind of sacrifice. And what God spoke to me was, Eric, I am going to add to you people like Timothy who are willing to shed their blood so that they would not be an obstacle to someone else receiving the gospel. Isn't that beautiful? Mm -hmm. So at this point, Paul has fallen into a sharp disagreement, but God is not done with him. First person he gives him is Silas, who happens to be a Roman citizen. Very important because of where they're going. Second person that he gives him is Timothy. Timothy knows, because Paul teaches it in another place, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. This is Galatians 5.6. But he also knows that there was a covenant given based on circumcision to all of the descendants of Abraham through Isaac. He knows that Paul teaches, if you're circumcised when you're called to the faith, remain that way. If you're uncircumcised, remain that way. And his decision in this matter is, I would rather go ahead and go the extra mile than to lay a stumbling block in anyone's way. Is that honorable, saints? Yes. Of course it is. I want to follow in that tradition. Watch what's next. Uh, the brothers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. By the way, for some ballots in that teaching, you can look at Galatians 2.3. Titus, who did not have a Jewish mother, was never compelled to be circumcised. The question in the New Testament is never, do we circumcise Gentiles? That, that decision was... Uh, finalized, period. Uh, it was always Gentiles do not need or have to be circumcised to come into the faith. The question in consideration was not do we give up a Jewish upbringing? 
Of course it was allowed. <laughs> the question at hand is, do we lay a legalistic requirement upon the Gentile for acceptance? And the answer is no, never. So anyway, as we go here, Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in faith and grew daily in numbers. How did the churches grow daily in numbers? When they are preaching and teaching something. And what they're preaching and teaching is a pedigree does not save you. What they're preaching and teaching is a culture, as beautiful as it is, does not save you. It is the grace of God working in your faith that saves you. This is the decision that was reached. They did not have a 14-point doctrinal statement that you must acquiesce to before they would accept you. They had a 39 books of the Old Testament. It's a not doctrinal statement. But they did not have all of the little factions that we have to <laughs> shove people into cookie-cutter molds. They simply said... If you are in love with trusting Jesus with all of your heart, you can be included in our midst. And they figured that the rest would work itself out through proper teaching. This is the way we've modeled our church. It really is. Is there any real question what I believe about certain subjects? I mean, with over 300 messages online, with a message board where you can ask any question at any time, with Wednesday services that we leave open for your questions at any time, is there really, I mean, when I ask y'all for questions, I don't get them, right? Why is it then, why would it be that I would feel like I needed to define some things? Why would that be? The answer, honestly, is because it will make us all feel more secure if we just agree on these things. I intentionally, intentionally have backed away from some of that. You know why? I have found out that what people have agreed to believe as progressive revelation has come forward, was wrong. And then they cannot back away from it. Have you ever met a Catholic person that didn't believe the Pope was infallible? I've met lots of them. But if they want to be Catholic, they have to believe that the Pope is infallible. How about a Baptist person who really didn't think it was wrong to dance? Well, why would you put those things in a doctrinal statement if there is some dispute in the Word? Say, so, well, fine. Then let's put the things that are not disputable. Well, if they're not disputable, do we really have to put them down? Do we really have to sit and argue about whether or not Jesus is divine? Doesn't the Word say it blatantly? Mm -hmm. Romans says, who is God over all? Why do we have to sit and define the mode and manner in which we think the resurrection will take place? The apostles preached it. We believe in it. We teach it. Do you really have to examine very hard? But you know what? You found out today in worship, you found out something. People look for a reason, we do it on a subconscious level, to sub exclude you. They look for a reason to categorize you. We don't, I've done it all my life. I don't mean to do it. We all do it. You ask somebody a question and you wait to hear if they have your pet answer. Have you ever done that? I one time knocked on a door in love with Jesus. A little old lady answered. And I saw on her door a scripture, so I thought, this is awesome. You know, I, I really could use talking to a Christian. First thing that this woman asked me is, does your wife wear men's clothes? I thought, are you kidding me? I, what? My name is Eric Stevens. What about that made you think I was married to a transvestite? And I said, no ma'am. The, the word says that a man shall not wear women's clothes. And she I seemed to get her approval, right? 
I'm very glad we didn't have to define what those clothes were because I kind of like blue jeans, even on a woman. She then said, do you baptize in the name of Jesus or the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit? I said, my very best understanding is that we baptize in the name of Jesus because that's the way that I saw the apostles do it in the book of Acts. She gave me the nod and I thought, apparently I'm two for two. She said, is there one God or three? I obviously knew what she was getting at. I said, the cry of Israel is that there is one God and one alone. She said, okay, you can come in. I thought, my God, does the mailman get this test to come in your house? What if I had one of those things wrong, not according to her understanding, quite right? Did that mean that we literally could not have a conversation? Who made us divide into these groups and be so subversive to the body of Christ? And where do you, if you only congregate with people that believe exactly what you believe, where is the potential for a clash of ideas that produces learning? Where is it? But isn't it a lot more secure just to define the ten things we agree on? Then there's nothing really to discuss. Maybe that's why people don't want to go to church. Maybe that's why it's boring. But how dare you have a disagreement in church? Why? If you have two Jews in a room, you have at least three opinions. I mean, that's just the way that works. The Jewish people value dialogue, and the church was Jewish when it started off. Having said all of that, God is adding the right people and the church is growing daily. What he spoke to me was, don't you worry, Eric. God will, I will add the right people to you. Now, I got in the car when he told me this. I went straight to Baton Rouge to Matthew and Cassidy's house and I knocked on their door. I taught them the rest of this message at the time and uh, now I'm going to teach it to you. You can imagine how you would respond in this position, but it is what God told me about our ministry. So this is an invitation to participate in our ministry, every one of you. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. How about that? One of the very first things that I told them is, I don't know why Sugarland. I said, this is what God spoke to me, but I don't know why. In fact, when I got there, I have never seen so many churches. I'm really disheartened that the house that I believe God told us to be in, I could stand on my driveway and look in the different directions and see steeples everywhere. I thought, why, Lord? Of all the places, you know I'd have gone to Africa for you. Lord, I desperately want to go to Israel for you. I would go anywhere. Why would you call me to Sugarland, Texas, a place I had never been before? Well, maybe that's why. It would require me to trust Him. And maybe all of the circumstances around me didn't look right, but it's the one He chose for me. In fact, the truth is, the very first time Matthew and Cassidy and I ever talked about starting a church, it was in Hammond, Louisiana. We went and had some Mexican food. I went and talked to realtors. We scouted out a place. I came a razor's edge from starting a church in Hammond, Louisiana. The reason I didn't is I was scared it would split the church in Baton Rouge. So I prayed some more and somebody said, but I thought you felt the anointing there. I did. I felt the anointing. You know why? God's approval is on me. Then make everything I do right. You ever read about a guy named A.A. A. Allen? They don't call him A.A. just because his first two initials were A. He was a healing evangelist, a powerful man of God. 
He healed difficult cases. Mm. I'm talking about the kind that most healing evangelists go, that's an obvious outward ailment that everybody sees. Let's pray for your mother's brother's sister who has a cold in some other place. He always prayed for the ones everybody else passed out. <laughs> the problem is, because like me, he didn't think alcohol was wrong. And I want you to understand, I do not believe the word teaches alcohol is wrong. He did something that is wrong. He began participating until it had mastery over him. He's called A.A. A. Allen because as he began to drink, he started to get drunk, which the word does say is absolute sin. Pretty soon, it wasn't enough to get drunk in his hotel room. He got drunk and came out into the congregation. Mm -hmm. And you know what was amazing? People still got healed. Mm -hmm. Was that an endorsement on the man or on the need of the people? The anointing is not the ultimate judge of whether or not you are where you're supposed to be doing what you're supposed to be doing. It's not. Saul was anointed as king of Israel. It didn't make him right. Right. I have been on both sides of the coin where a pastor is an anointed man of God. I've been that pastor and I've been the congregant. And it doesn't always make us right. We all have an obligation to find out where is God calling us and what is He calling us to. And if you're smart, you'll listen to the counsel of the people around you, but it does not make your decision for you. You have that obligation. Having said that, can you imagine what it must have been like? They got a little ministry crew together. Come on, man! We're going! I feel grieved. We can't go to Asia. John and George said, why not Asia? God had a plan for Asia. He said, well, let's go to Mysia. They're kept by Jesus from going there. Apparently not every good thing that people have in mind to do is what God wants them doing. In fact, Acts 17.26 teaches that He put boundaries in your life to get you where you are now, doing what you're doing now. Why did I lose that job? Well, let's look at the glass half full. Maybe it is a boundary that God set for you so He could push you where He wanted you to. Don't we serve a big God? Yes. I really love Him. It says, uh, After Paul had seen the vision, no, nope, sorry, back in verse 7, when they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithia, but the Spirit would not allow them to. So they passed through Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him. Before we get into that, what if they had just said, you know, we don't know what else to do and this seems like a good thing, let's go do it. They may not have been where they needed to be having the right vision. Happens all of the time. Is everybody reading um, this book about special 40 days? Well then, let's read that book. Let's, let's take that vision and run with it. It worked for them. Then make it God for you. Our vision of our church may not work for anyone else. It's just the vision of our church for us. Does that make sense to you? Yes. Okay. Over and over and over, the Scripture says that He directs the paths of the righteous. We have to let Him direct us. That means our decisions are not our own. So as I was telling Matthew and Cassidy this, I said, He has directed me to Sugarland, Not Richmond... Not Rosenberg, not Houston, Sugarland. Now, what's funny about that is it was just about two years ago, I was really seriously considering a building in Arcola because we couldn't afford anything in Sugarland. And I drove out to it, and it seemed so nice. And I drove out to it, and I took people with me. And it felt good. The idea of a building felt good. 
And then I, I went and walked around it and I prayed. And it felt so good. But I just could not commit to it. And I didn't know why. The reason that I couldn't commit to it is because I had forgotten the most fundamental thing that Jesus had told me. Sugarland. Not Richmond, not Rosenberg. But Lord, the property's cheaper there. Lord, the economic status of the people in Rosenberg is much nicer to me, more blue collar, than the people in Sugarland. I'm tired of seeing Mercedes at the Walmart. I wanted to go where there are people I could relate to. It's not the point. He called me to Sugarland. So we got that very clear. And I told them, then I described Sugarland in glowing terms, much like the Garden of Eden. And I tried to seduce them and woo them our direction. So uh, during the night, Paul had had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him. Where's the man from? Macedonia. Something good comes from Macedonia other than those special uh, nuts that go on cookies. Uh, come over to Macedonia and help us. <coughs> he sees a vision of a man. You hear me? You want to say that with me? Of a man from Macedonia. That's very important. It's key. To come over and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, who saw it? Paul did. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to go preach the gospel to them. The we and the us there includes Luke, who's traveling with them writing this, and includes Timothy, who has shed his blood to be useful to the king. It includes Silas, who is a Roman citizen and is on his first trip with Paul, and it includes Paul. But only Paul had seen the vision. Brothers, do you have difficulty unifying around something that didn't happen to you? I can have trouble with that. Psalm 133 says how good it is when brothers dwell together in unity. It's like the dew on Mount Hermon or like oil dripping down from Arid's beards on his sons. It's something that the Lord will bless. Indeed, Jesus prayed about it His last day on the earth. May they be brought to complete unity and be one even as we're one. In Romans, Paul encouraged it. In Ephesians, he encouraged it. In Colossians, he encouraged it. You know why he had to encourage it? It's elusive because of what happens next. If you thought that this missionary journey started roughly, it started through a sharp disagreement, wait till you see the first obstacles they hit. Where'd they want to go first? Well, they were prevented. Where'd they want to go second? Well, they were prevented. Then one of the group has a dream. And they're all going to go follow that dream. Do you remember what happened to Joseph for being a dreamer? One of the problems is when the, count, when the cost has not fully been counted and you pledge your unity before your heart is really in it, as soon as it gets rough, you get out. But, if you count the cost and you say, no matter what, this is God. I believe that it's God. We're going to hit hiccups along the way, but that's alright. If that's the way that you approach this expecting trial, then you can endure in it. And one of the things that I wanted to know about Matthew and Cassidy was not only are you going to have to be willing to shed your blood for the gospel, but if things don't go well, write it first. Are you going to back out? Or are you fully committed to this? And they took some time to think about that because they're smart. They should. Now during those 15, 16 days, I sent them a postcard every day with a scripture on it. Right? I did everything I could to say, thus saith the Lord. But I knew ultimately it had to be their decision. Mandy and I went through a similar process. But God spoke to her. You have to have something that you can stand on that causes you to conclude this vision is ours. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes. It's not, do I like the music? It's not, well, you know, 
they have just a stellar youth group. It's not, well, all of the people there are so bright and happy. Is this vision something that we have concluded is our vision too? And when you answer that question, you don't find yourself going against the grain with the church all of the time. It feels like a sweet harmony, a unity. It doesn't mean you're not scared to death. I watched my mother and my sister tense up like their, their legs were squeezed together and they were tense when I told them that I believed that God was going to have them teach four-year-olds. That's not something that they were immediately like, oh, of course, yes, this is what I've always longed to do. God will always call you towards the difficult things. The question is, have you concluded that the vision belongs to you as well? Okay, so these guys did. Watch what happens. Imagine that this counting the cost is important with these words. From Troas we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day on to Neapolis. From there we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony, and the leading city of the district of Macedonia. We arrived. We're God's man of power for the hour. We're here. Where is the Macedonian man that needs to be saved so we can do this thing, right? Get her done. And we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river. Why on the Sabbath? Because all of these men are Jews. And they're all going to a minion or a, a synagogue, a place of meeting for the Jews. And we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman, not a Macedonian man, a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house, and she persuaded us. It's very difficult to understand, and I, I just coming from our perspective, and I don't want to spend too much more time on it because we're still not to the meat that I want to give you. But you have to understand this. Number one, this is not the vision that Paul had. It's not a man. It's not a Macedonian man. It's a woman. In fact, there's no man mentioned there for a reason. Luke wants to make sure you don't get sidetracked. This is not the vision. The vision's still coming. But the second is, this is still dealing with that issue in Acts 15. She is a Gentile proselyte. Uh, they're called worshipers of God. And what she wants to know is, if you really do consider me an equal, you Jewish brothers, will you actually stay in my home? Follow me? Am I only an equal in our church services? Or do you consider me equal enough to stay in my house? Where maybe everything's not completely kosher. You understand? They stayed in her home. The gospel always advances when people are self-sacrificing and they consider someone else's need higher than their own. Now, it's not that Lydia had nothing to offer. Luke has a very subtle way of insinuating this. If she's a dyer of purple cloth, she is incredibly wealthy. This is the cloth that is sold to royalty only. Okay, and I'm not suggesting she only had money to offer. What I'm saying is, look, there is no flowery description. And they found a rich woman and said, Oh, God's obviously using you because you have the finances. <laughs> he finds a very subtle way to mention it without any consequence. Because God doesn't want your money. He wants your life. I didn't want the P-Rose to come here because they had money. I wanted them to come here because I knew God would use their lives. Yes. There's no difference between them and every other one here. I don't want your money. Tithing is an expression of faith. There's a reason we don't pass a plate here. I don't want you to feel compelled 
I want your lives. I don't want you to write a check. I want you to go yourself. Once, uh, so anyway, they go stay at her house. She persuaded them, right? But what about the vision, Paul? So they're still looking. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. They're having trouble finding even one Macedonian man. Everywhere they go, there are women. Uh, she earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. This girl followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. Something about this didn't set right with Paul. And I can tell you there have been a lot of times in ministry where I was sitting in front of people who said all of the right things. Something just didn't feel right. I told the Pebros early on there would be times in which we simply would not know what to do and we just had to pray and trust God. I want to tell you the truth. How many of you felt like you were ready to be parents before you had your first child? Yeah, you never did. And then you were ready for two when you had your second. I'm not talking about you're looking back on it saying you're ready. I'm talking about you're like, I have now arrived and it's time for a baby. You always feel inadequate to what God's called you to. So I knew that there would be times in which we would be sitting in front of people and not know what to do. They're in this situation. These men are servants of the Most High God and are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so troubled that he turned around and said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the Spirit left her. Well, if it was a demon, which it was, and you could just cast it out, which Paul did frequently, why did it take many days to do it? When you embark on anything for God, number one, there are counterfeit options that come first. That happens all of the time. Come to Asia. Why? Because God wants you to go to Macedonia, not Asia. Come to Mysia. No, God wants me to go to Macedonia. That's what he said. In our lives, there are always things to pull us off track from where God called us. Then secondly, you will run into demonic opposition that presents mirages. Wouldn't you want somebody following you around saying, these men are servants of the Most High God, showing you the way to be saved. I mean, that is what they were there to do, and it was a true statement, right? But something wasn't quite right about it. Something in the testimony was impure. It was coming from someone who had not been saved themselves and was not a servant of the Most High God, and it would taint the overall message. I knew that when we began a church, we would run into difficulties. You meet people with mixed motives. You meet people who say the right things and you don't know what to do. Ultimately, you pray, and when you are troubled by a scenario, you ask God to show you, and then you act decisively, in faith. When you do that, there are often severe consequences. Watch what happens, not just to Paul, but to the whole group. When the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. Before we go any further, who saw the vision? Paul did. So how are you feeling if you were Luke, Timothy, or Silas at the moment? You are hoping that Paul was right, huh? Because you're being dragged through the marketplace where you came to do something good and people are going to treat you ugly. Have, have they wronged anyone here? They set a girl free from demonic oppression. They made a Gentile convert to Judaism, a full-fledged follower of Yeshua, and made her feel like an equal and stayed in her home and taught the people and baptized the whole family. What have they done that is wrong? 
Not a thing. First thing you need to understand is there are going to be people that will charge us with wrong no matter what we do. That's part of the job description of Christianity. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews. Bet Timothy's feeling really good about being circumcised at this moment, huh? Think about that. This is crass, but he would have had a means of showing he wasn't a Jew before he met Paul. You understand what I'm saying? The Romans aren't asking, who's your mom? Is she a Jew? They're looking for your ID. The same way the Germans did. There were Jews who did not want to suffer with the Jewish people, but their bodies were marked in such a way that a German could tell. You understand? How do you think Timothy's feeling about this at the moment? Is he reconsidering his commitment at this moment? Or when he decided to let somebody put a knife to his body, do you think he had the issue settled that he would die for Jesus if it was necessary? How many of us have said those words? I will die for Jesus. But then when put to test in the smallest way, like give somebody your seat, let somebody go first in traffic, you loan somebody money who promised to repay you the next day, and now every time they see you, they just act like it didn't happen. How can we die for Jesus if we can't die in those little moments? See, this is part of the ministry call. Somebody called this once doormat ministries. The truth is that you will see people come in, wipe their feet on your lives and ours, get cleaned up and walk right out without even a thank you. Mm-hmm. Happens all of the time. It's always been this way for the real church. I have no desire to be in a cathedral or a giant arena. I just want to effectively serve the people that God has called me. What are your desires? Do you need to do something great? Or will you suffer if it brings glory for the kingdom? Mm-hmm. See, this is a question that hey, I believe I know the answer. It's why you're here. But in any case, it's worth considering. These men are Jews, and they are throwing the city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. What customs are unlawful for the Romans to accept or practice that they're advocating? Nothing. This is a complete fabrication. Unless it's that they're claiming there is no king except Jesus. That might be unlawful for a Roman who had to consider Caesar king. You mean people will lie about you and your intentions? Of course they will. They'll say things like your child care is inadequate. You... People are trying to force me to have an experience with God. They'll say all kinds of things about you when the truth is they're uncomfortable with where God has put them and they're looking for a way to alleviate the pressure. Mm-hmm. Happens every day. But what do you do about that? You let there be a sharp disagreement that separates you forever? Or do you just take one on the chin for Jesus and figure it's part of the job? This is a question for the body, not the leadership. We've already made our decision. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas. Crowds have a way of doing that. The mob always gets in unison. Isn't that amazing? The people of God often can't get in unison. That word in in Greek is homothumaden. It means a oneness of purpose. The crowd gets in a oneness of purpose. And what is it? To tear down Paul and Silas. Have you noticed when a national ministry makes a mistake, the media gets in homothumaden? They get in one accord to bring them down, man. The church rarely gets in one accord about anything. Except these days, getting rich is pretty high on their list. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. Keep your finger here. Turn to Romans 8. Stripped and beaten. 
Please turn. We're going to be done on time, I promise. It's worth learning. Stripped and beaten. The rest of you there? Everybody there? Yes. I gotta find it again. I lost it while I was talking to you. Minion. Oh, eight. Stripped and beaten. I consider Romans eight eighteen that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Our present sufferings are not worth comparing with something. In Romans five three. He says, suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character. When you get to Peter, he says, everyone who wants to live a godly life will suffer. How are these men feeling about this at the moment? Paul had made up his mind that his present sufferings weren't worth comparing with the glory. But do you think at this moment you could be saying, we should have went to Asia. We should have went to Mysia. We didn't. Paul told us to come here. There has been no Macedonian man. And look, now we are stripped and beaten. How difficult would that be? You didn't see the vision. Someone else did. But what did they all conclude before they left? His vision was their vision. In the kingdom, you must be ready. And I told Matthew and Cassie this. I'm telling you. You must be ready to be stripped and beaten. Now it's not very often that in America somebody's going to take your clothes off and hit you with a cane. But do you know what they will do? They'll attack your character. They will say things about you that's not true. They will insinuate that you had a false motive when you had a pure motive. What do you do in those scenarios? Is there any hint here that these men attacked the magistrate? That while this is occurring? In fact, Paul has kind of an ace card that he never plays until the very end. It's strange. And Silas has it too. They're Roman citizens. They, it is not lawful for them to be stripped and beaten without a trial. But there's no mention of their rights at this moment. They only mention their rights after the completion of their vision. It's an amazing thing. Wouldn't you tell somebody it's not lawful for you to do this to me? They must have had some sense that this was just part of their calling. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. Paul had a chance to do all kinds of things. I bet he could have sold books in his day about his revelation. He could have started a message and said, if you want the rest of it, send 1999 to Jerusalem where I'll be residing. Yeah. But Paul chose to invest in stocks instead. He was in the centermost part of a Macedonian prison, being stripped and beaten. Can you think of anything that would be further away from what God told him? A Macedonian man saying, come help us, show us the way to be saved. Could it be discouraged? Do you think he could be down? If not him, how about Timothy? How about Luke? How about any of the others? Maybe Timothy and Luke aren't in the prison. Maybe that's just Silas. Maybe those two escaped. But how would you feel at this moment? Far from God? What do you do in those moments where you are down? 
What do you do in those moments where it does not look like your calling is coming about? Here's the pearl, saints. It comes in the next verse. About midnight, the middle of the dark hours, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. When you are stripped, when you are beaten, when your character has been maligned, when you feel as if you are barred, you couldn't go to any of the places you wanted to go, you went to the place you thought God told you to go, and nothing's happening, you don't see the Macedonian man, and people are hurting me everywhere. Are you grumbling and complaining? Are you backbiting and fault-finding with each other? Is this the moment where you turn and say, if I brought Barnabas here, this wouldn't have happened instead of you, Silas. Or Silas turns and says, Paul, I knew you didn't see that vision. You just ate too much pizza that night. <laughs> Quit watching those movies. That came from that movie and you know it. Is this the moment where the ministry team breaks down? Where the vision doesn't occur? What did they choose to do with their feet and hands in stocks? They embraced their situation and they began praising God in spite of it. How much of your life are you embracing your situation versus crying out to God that you're cursed because of it? See, you never know if God didn't put you in the position because there are prisoners listening. And the other prisoners were listening to them. It might be the middle of your darkest hour and it might feel like you have been stripped, beaten unjustly, been put in prison and in stocks. For no reason, you didn't do anything wrong. But what if you were called to participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you could participate in the glories of Christ? What if by you being stripped and beaten, it meant someone else would get to see what was really underneath? You know, everything that was ever made for the temple, everything, was of a certain kind of wood that was thorny. And it had to be stripped of its outer exterior. The pure inward white part of the wood, soft part, was exposed and laid with gold. Why do we think we're different? We're used in God's surface. Service. That means your, surf, your outward appearance has got to be stripped away sometimes. Is there a different you in the privacy of your home than there is in the public congregation? Is there a different you in your workplace than there is in your church? God will allow parts of your life to be squeezed, pressured, pushed, so that others can see what's really in there, not to bring you down. Because if you are genuine in your faith, these trials prove it and others are drawn to it like a moth to a flame. They find out where your treasure is when you're in the stocks. And I don't mean the stock market. See, if when you are being persecuted, you are praising, and when your situation looks dire, you have hope, they know that what you have is real. Otherwise, it would fade. I come from a place where people were marching in abortion rallies often. I'm against abortion. I think it's murder. I don't go march in abortion rallies because it's not what God told me to do. I've noticed that when it rains, they don't have as big a turnout for their rallies. If God called you to that, would it matter whether it rained or not? It really shouldn't, should it? So what does that say about the commitment of the people? We need to be careful that we have concluded that our hearts are fully committed to what God called us to. And once you've settled that, Put away all of your deliberating. Quit reasoning God out. Embrace your situation. Invest in your stocks. And see what God does. You never know who is listening. The prisoners were listening. 
Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundation of the prisons were shaken. You understand that our God has the power to shake the very earth? In the book of Revelation, the seventh chapter, he took prayers of the saints, gave them to an angel in a censer with incense, hurled it to the earth, and with peals of thunder and mighty earthquakes, it affected the events on the earth. It's during the times you were in the inner room, in chains, stripped and beaten, humiliated at your lowest point, that God is the closest to you. He might be ready to shake the earth and open the prison doors. Mm-hmm. That's so much fun to sing about it. Uh, he opens prison doors and sets the captives free. Blah, 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 blah. You sing the, that with little kids, right? What about when you live it? Mm-hmm. How easy is that to live? We need to be careful that what we are in our praise, we are in our reality. Mm-hmm. Look what happens because of these men. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once all of the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. Why do you get in ministry? So that people will know your name is great? So that you have a nice car? God, I can tell you that's not the case. Why do you want to do something for Jesus? Your number one motivation needs to be so that people's chains will fall off. And I can tell you, I preached in Dixon Correctional Institute and I never met people that were so free of chains. They had no more facade that they had to show people. They didn't care anymore what people thought about them. They all knew that they were guilty. It's why they were there. And they just embraced Jesus with all of their heart. And they felt freer than people that I've met in any church, anywhere, that are still wearing chains you can't see. Our goal in life needs to be people to see people set free from their chains. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself. Would you say the sentence of death was in his heart? If he's drawn his sword and is about to kill himself, the sentence of death is in his heart. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself, we are all here. In short, what we are called to do is be in situations where the sentence of death is in people's heart. Maybe you can see the drawn sword and maybe you can't. And you offer them the word of life. Help. Now what does Paul have to do to say, hey, don't harm yourself, we're all here. What does that require on Paul's part? To be stripped, beaten, chained, in stocks, and be willing to stay there. Because the jailer's going to kill himself because he thinks all the prisoners have left. And Paul said, no, we're willing to stay in this situation if you won't harm yourself. Come on, that's ministry, saints. Isn't that exactly what Jesus did for you? He took the most awful, worst part of human existence so that your chains could fall off. And what has he called you to do? Do it for others. God made this real to me in a powerful way when I moved to Sugar Land, Texas. These are all things that I knew. I mean, I got it, but not like I got it that day. I got in the car and drove to tell my closest friends. And I'm telling you, because this is our ministry team. Right here. This is the core that God told me He would build. And with this core, we're, core, we're going to go approach the crowd. It's not Eric Stevens or Matthew P. Rowe Ministries. God is calling you to this. And you know what? Your stocks... You're stripping and beating. All of those things, they all look different than they do for me. 
What's hard for me might be easy for you. What's easy for you might be hard for me. But God will always call you to self-sacrifice for the benefit of others. It's what the kingdom's built on. Listen to the jailer's response. The jailer called for lights. Revelation. And he fell in. He rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? This is a Macedonian man, a man in Macedonia, the first man that they've come into contact with. And you know what? Paul knows that it's the fulfillment of the vision because he tells him not just you, but your whole household will be saved today. And they all get saved and baptized. What was that man's family worth? You don't know their names. You don't know where they went or what they did for the gospel. You have no idea. But apparently, it was worth it to God that Paul and Silas sacrificed in this way for them. See, sometimes when we bail out of what God's told us to do and we don't finish the task, what we're saying is, God, those people and their chains are not worth it. And then what would that really say about what we think about what Jesus did for us? Because He told us to go and do likewise. So what price is too high? None. What sacrifice is too big? None. What obstacle can't be moved? None. If God needs to send an earthquake to support you doing what He told you to do, when He told you to do it, He'll send an earthquake. But I'll tell you the truth, our problems are usually not so external. We begin to reevaluate. We begin to question. We begin to talk ourselves out of what God called us to do when it becomes difficult. This is why charismatic Christianity looks as flaky as the windshield wipers on your car. They hear from God to do one thing one moment and from God to do something else the next. I'm saying enough. Our church won't be characterized by that. We're going to invest in what God's called us to invest in and all the power of hell will not overcome us. Can you say amen to that? Amen. What's amen mean? So be it unto God. Well, I want you to spend the next week thinking about whether or not your life really will say amen to that. Because I'm curious what it is that he wants from you. This is the year where I don't set the vision for your ministries. This is the year where you have a beautiful season in its time. This is the year where everybody stretches out and begins bearing their own fruit. And we just help you with it. Amen. Say, this is the year. This is the year. Come on, I'm going to invest in stocks. Well, we'll pray together. And I want to tell you this now that our CD's closed. I love you. I am proud of you. There's not a person in here, not even the Torres, who are our newest family, that I did not pray for to be here this morning. And some of you weren't here when we started, and I went in the back of the church and I prayed, and everybody that I mentioned is here. A little worried there for a while. I even prayed for the guy that left us, that came out. I saw him outside and I said, send him in here, Lord. But that says more about him than it says about the Lord. That's just part of life, saints. You have to be willing to be rejected. That's where the kingdom gets going. You ready to do something for Jesus? Then he's ready to speak it. Y'all stand to your feet. We'll pray. I didn't get to tell you, by the way, but after all of the mistreatment, Paul says, by the way, was it lawful for you to beat us since we're Romans? Silas and I are Romans. The magistrate is horrified at that because he knows he's answerable to Caesar for it. Which begs the question, why didn't Paul tell him beforehand? 
And why did it become important afterwards? After they all got saved and Paul had completed the task, he wanted to make sure his reputation among the people was intact and that people didn't view the gospel as something that was illegal. So after they got saved, he fought for his right. But beforehand, he's more than willing to lay them down. What a pattern. What awesome man of God. Y'all join hands. We'll pray. Holy, holy one. Lord, we thank you for the chance to be instructed by your word. We believe that all scripture is useful, that it's profitable, that it's breathed from your very lips. Correct us with it, Lord God. Rebuke us. And we ask you mostly, encourage us with it. Lord, we are not obstinate. At least we're trying not to be. We're not stiff-necked. Our whole heart's desire is to be led by you. Lord, I'm praying that you would impart vision to the families here. Lord, that they would wholeheartedly embrace that vision. That your kingdom would be advanced in the lives of the people. Lord, we love you and we thank you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. It's time to